Hello and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by a couple of teachers with a love for pop culture and a shared interest in educating our students in the ways of U.S. government and politics. I'm Mr. Crowder. And I'm Mr. Herzler. And we're both teaching AP government politics during this year, and we clearly have way too much time on our hands because for the first time after years of requests, we are finally doing our first podcast. So for the five of you who ask and may be listening, uh, now is your time. That's right. We're going to begin each episode with some information regarding an important topic in AP government and politics, and we will end most episodes with a debatable issue related to this week's topic. And of course, we will do some little breaks in between, offer some commentary, and take questions from you, the listener. So let's go ahead and get started. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gov Guys Podcast, Episode 1, National Treasures, all about our foundational documents. So on this week's episode of GovGuys, we'll be taking a look at the foundational documents of the United States. And what are those foundational documents, may I ask? Well, we've got the Declaration of Independence, the Articles Confederation, and the Constitution. Yeah, let's start by setting the context of each of these three documents. All of them are written at the tail end of a period in history known as the Enlightenment. In this period, well-read individuals came together to discuss and propose new ideas that overcame old ways of thinking, especially in regards to government and society. Wild ideas like one single person shouldn't have absolute rule over everyone. People should have the right to challenge the ideas and to criticize their government. And even basic ideas such as human beings should have certain rights just because they are human beings. It's often really hard to understand how the world looked in the time before the Enlightenment, especially in the U.S., because the United States is a byproduct of the Enlightenment. We are created in the very image and ideas of these people who read Enlightenment thought and said to themselves, you know what, they have some really good points. But for centuries, people in Europe and around the world were tortured and killed for challenging their governments or practicing a different religion, things like that. And it was far from perfect, but the establishment of the United States served as a departure from those previously common draconian ideas regarding the relationship between kings and queens and their people. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about these Enlightenment ideas, but it's fundamentally important to understand what those ideas are to form the basis for our own government. So, Crowder, who's your favorite Enlightenment thinker? Well, I've got to go with John Locke. Uh, John Locke is uh, an English thinker. Uh, writing at a time where, you know, his ideas were pretty revolutionary. It's it's kind of hard to, to count that out. Uh, John Locke said that people should be guaranteed certain rights just simply because they are human beings. He called them natural rights. And he said that people should have life, liberty, and property. So they have a right to live. They have a right to basically pursue you know, the type of life that they wish to have. And he also said something that was pretty revolutionary, which is like people should have the opportunity to own land, which in Europe, land was pretty hard to come by. So the idea of just an average person owning land would have been something that was a bit of a departure from the norm. John Locke went on to say some pretty wild things concerning the government. Uh, you know, he was talking about the fact that government should only exist at the consent of the governed, meaning that 
people should have an input in, ter in, in terms of how their government should look. So he's advocating for a republic here. And he also says that if the government is not protecting natural rights of life, liberty, and property, that they have a right, the people rather, have a right to overthrow the government. That's pretty wild when you think about it at the time. Um, and so ultimately, a lot of these ideas you're going to definitely see showing up in documents like the Declaration of Independence. So Hertzler, let me ask you that very same question. Who is your favorite Enlightenment thinker and why? All this talk about for the people. You're not a Hobbes guy, Crowder. The guy had some pretty great ideas as well. I mean, in his book, Leviathan, he basically said that people were born evil and that, that government is there to keep people in line and that these kings have every right to have these harsh rules because because he has to keep the public in line. And he, and he does so for the people themselves, because if there's no rules, there's no basis basis in fairness. You know, the, the rules are tough on everybody. Um, so so, yeah, you need that good system of rules. So. So yeah, John Locke's ideas may be perfect in theory that everybody works together, but you need that strong hand to keep everybody in line. Let me ask you about another figure within the Enlightenment, um, Baron de Montesquieu. Yeah. Give me a little bit of rundown about Montesquieu and why he's important for our purposes. Yeah, because we can't talk about the Enlightenment without mentioning the French, right? Uh, Montesquieu, uh, yeah, had some great ideas too. It kind of what we're talking about here, a good balance, um, especially if you take a look at American government, you know, we have Montesquieu's ideas all over that with the, the, the separation of powers where you have representation of the people being the legislative branch, but you also have that strong leader that Hobbes kind of suggested with the executive branch to make sure that everybody is following in line. And then you even have a good system and, and, you know, the, the judicial branch where they're judging to make sure everything's fair. Like John Locke said, that everybody's rights are being protected under that system. And if it's not, that needs to be changed or, or removed. Yeah, and one of the important things to take away about Montesquieu, especially when we contrast him with something like someone like Thomas Hobbes, is Montesquieu is saying power shouldn't be in the hands of one person. You need to spread that power out because if it's in the hands of one person, what's going to happen? It's going to you're going to have a tyrant. Uh, so take the power that the king has previously had, you know, exclusively, and spread it out among what would become three branches of government. So speaking of which, as we're kind of getting away from the Enlightenment and into the United States and the founding of the United States. Let's take a look at our first document, which is the Declaration of Independence. Now, which Enlightenment thinker are we seeing here? Well, it's pretty clear that Thomas Jefferson, who's the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, was a big old fan of John Locke. I mean, you see a lot of his ideas in there. I mean, he basically quotes the, the life and liberty part, just decides to change it uh, to the pursuit of happiness and, instead of property. Um, so, so it's pretty clear that, that John Locke's ideas are all over the Declaration, especially when it comes to overthrowing the king. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea, you know, if we're looking at the preamble of the Declaration of Independence and into the, you know, first full paragraph after that is, is just straight up, <laughs> like word for word, John Locke, except like the teacher said, you know, uh, this this looks exactly like John Locke's homework, Thomas Jefferson, what's going on? And so Thomas Jefferson went back and changed a few words here and there. 
Uh, but all the same ideas John Locke advocated for, that life, liberty, and property versus the pursuit of happiness, uh, the idea of advocating for a republic, that's all there. That's John Locke's uh, woven right into the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. So, if only Taylor Swift was around today, you know, yeah. that famous slide, we're never, ever, ever, ever getting back together, England. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson would have just sent uh, King George a, a YouTube video to uh, Taylor Swift's albums. But, uh, you know, here we are. We're having to write these long, flowery essays instead. Run us through it real quick. What What's the main idea? What are the main points of the Declaration of Independence? I think right off the bat, the first main idea is the colonists have had enough with the the taxes, with the authoritarian rule that they feel like they they're suffering at the hands of King George the Third, and they're they're basically outlining that and saying, hey, we've had enough about this. We've had enough of this. And if you're not going to give us representation, if you're not going to give us some kind of voice, and, and say, you know, we don't agree, then then we we have every right to break away. I mean, look, John Locke said it himself. If the government denies us our rights, then then we have every right to to dis dissolve it and create something that will. Yeah. So all we're doing is following the writing of another person, right? Right. Um. And so yeah, you have this. You know, we're breaking up with you, letter. And yeah. here's why. Here's all the things that you've done. It's not us. It's you. <laughs> yeah. in, in a real way of saying. Uh, and, and so it's important to understand the Declaration of Independence is written right at the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. We tend to see the American Revolution and the Revolutionary War as one and the same. When there's a little separation of the two, the kind of a revolutionary period starts way out in the, you know, really 1760s, goes through a series of these taxes and laws that the colonists feel are quite unfair. And it goes into the American Revolutionary War, which ends in effectively in 1781 with the Battle of Yorktown. After that, not too long, there's the Treaty of Paris, which ends the American Revolutionary War. The British have to sigh real hard, come to the table and admit that they're beaten and that these United States now uh, have the right to rule and, and self-determine. So the American colonies win their independence. What, what now? Yeah, what now? They, they realize that they, they're in a, a big hurt because now nobody's over them, right? They have to find some system of government to, to control things. And, and they really needed a system of government in the middle of the revolution. They, they had to have some type of, of backdrop for this country. So, hmm, so, so how, what, how are they going to fix that? Well, 1776, the Declaration of Independence is written. Within the next year, we have to realize that meetings of the Continental Congresses are pretty sporadic at this time because some of the founding fathers are literally on the run. But when they can meet, they form a committee uh, led by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and they say, write a framework for government, something that will work to get us through this war. And so the United States came together to establish new government, all while adapting these enlightened ideas in the, in the founders that they liked, keeping parts of the British system that they liked, simultaneously establishing a brand new government that was unlike anything that the constitutional monarchy was like in, in Britain uh, that they had just broken away from. And so how's it go? Eh. Not, we don't like to talk about Bruno. Yeah. The, um, the first framework for government that's created is called the Articles Confederation. 
And I mean, off, they're often neglected in our history and that we as Americans like to think of our government as the quote unquote, the best kind of government. And we really like to rest on the laurels of the US Constitution without acknowledging that the Articles Confederation served as a framework for the United States uh, in its infancy, you know, it's, its first decade realistically. Um, and while there are some arguably good components to it, we largely brush it aside in our history because the government that was set up under the Articles of Confederation was extremely ineffective at establishing a lasting government. Yeah, it's sad to say that, you know, the United States basically treats the Articles of Confederation like the Dursley Street, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It's there, but we don't want to say we banish it under the, the stairwell really quietly and, and we don't really mention it. Uh, and the Constitution is, is almost like our hero doctrine, you know, the one that that everybody quotes and and everybody's talking about. And, and we forget that there are some ideas that still remain from the articles, just reworded a little differently. Yeah. So moment of silence for the Articles of Confederation. All right, moving on. <laughs> so, so let's flip the discussion on its head and start with this question. What do the articles do well? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, the, the biggest thing is, I feel like the biggest success is uh, the land that it acquires uh, with the, the the Northwest Ordinance. Um, we we acquire five states and in, in the Northwest, and and we 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 set up a way of, of adding those states into the union. Um, so so adding territory, I think, is the biggest biggest pro of it. Uh, the only other pro that you could really look at is it's the government that it's the government system that won us the Revolutionary War. Um, so if it wasn't for the articles, you, you, you don't know if the country would have fell apart. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there are some lasting components to the Articles of Confederation. If nothing else, it's like when you have an older sibling and your parents start screaming at the Confederation serve as a purpose of what you know what went well, what didn't go well. And and outside of achieving, you know, that kind of path to statehood for the Northwest Ordinance areas, um, you know, we have the establishment of the legislative branch, and parts of it are different, but parts of it are the same, not necessarily completely word for word, but you can see how the threads of the Articles of Confederation sets up the very same Congress that we have today, at least in part. But as we look at the negatives, you know, the cons of the Articles of Confederation, there are many. Uh, it's important to note the Articles of Confederation made by design a, a weak central government. Right. The, the, the big fear here was that there was going to be a return to tyranny, a return to a tyrant. If you give the government too much power, you're going to be in the same type of situation that you were just getting out of with Great Britain or at this point when it's written, the situation you're trying to get out of with Great Britain. So, you know, they're walking this fine line between how much power is too much power, how much power is too little power. Uh, and on this side, they erred on the side of caution, perhaps quite reasonably so based in the time frame that we're talking about. And they created an incredibly weak central government. Uh, one of the, the the only branch of government that existed was the Congress, the legislative branch. There was no real executive branch or judicial branch to be had. Uh, if Congress wanted to set up some type of executive or some type of judicial court to hear you know disputes between states, they could. Uh, but ultimately, they didn't really flex that power very hard. Most of the power is in the hands of the states, and it's it is really hard because the states 
want to go back to that time period before colonialization and just be their own individual entity. Um, they were very separate. And, and you see that in under the articles. It's all for their own self-interest. So they don't, North Carolina doesn't really care what's going on in Pennsylvania and New York doesn't care what George is up to. They just want their own sovereignty um, to control what's in their sphere. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it's hard to think of it this way, but when we were 13 colonies for Great Britain, we were treated as individual colonies. I mean, they might collectively refer to them as the American colonies, and perhaps we do a disservice of this when we're teaching it brief, you know, very briefly in whatever history class you're doing, but like Pennsylvania was treated incredibly differently than even Delaware right next to it, or New York or North Carolina, as you pointed out. So, you know, states wanted to have a very similar system of government where they alone were basically self-determining what happened and how things went. Other issues within the Articles Confederation, economic issues, things like trade, currency, and taxation were huge deals. International trade couldn't be monitored by Congress. They didn't give themselves the power to do that. Uh, currency, <laughs> this yep. is a really wild system to think about, but like Georgia has its own currency, North Carolina has its own currency, Virginia, so on and so forth. Like trying to buy something in the real world with Chuck E. Cheese tickets. Yeah, they don't take Monopoly money at restaurants. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I, I keep trying. Um, but, you know, th this current currency just going from one place to the other is, is a big disaster for people as they're trying to have a, you know, truly United States. And, and taxation. Hertzler, let me borrow a couple bucks. No. That's how Not taxation happens. That's how taxation worked under the Articles Confederation. If I was Congress right there, Hertzler was any number of states. There was a written agreement that states could give money to the, the, the Congress, but essentially states could also just not do it. They had the right. Um, you know, you could request money, you could request tax money from the states, but we also have to remember that many of these states are in the middle of a war or just after the war, they have their own debts to pay. I think the terminology they used for it was borrow money, um, not so much call it a tax, but the states are broke also. And that kind of leads into our next point is you start to see this this shift to where the colonists are getting pretty upset not only with the federal government but they're also getting really annoyed with their state governments hating taxes and american tradition <laughs> yeah i don't like april 15th either <laughs> so um and i have two relatives that are you know they're they're accountants so they're not you know too highly liked in that that time of the year are they tarred and feathered not that far okay okay throwback um Outside of economic issues, which there were many, uh, politically, emergency response. This is something that we can take a look at in a future example called Shays Rebellion. We'll discuss that in just a minute. But we have to realize that for the central government to operate, things were slow and intentionally slow at that. In order to get anything done and in order to get any government laws made at the federal level or you know high up government level, it takes nine states to approve. Okay, just to give you an idea of how long that might take, all 13 states ratified the Articles Confederation, written in 1777, finished up, proposed, not approved until 1781. We can't even get five dentists to agree all at one time, let alone 13 colonies to agree. Like, it, it's hard to get a group of people to agree. If we take a poll in class tomorrow, Crowder, you know, our students aren't even all going to agree on one thing. There's always going to be that one person be like you know should it be friday afternoon right now people would be like yeah mostly and then there'd be one kid like yeah 
No, I, I kind of like school. You know, a nerd. <laughs> um, but, you know, slow decisions like passing laws required nine out of 13 states. But if we wanted to change, like, let's just say we're looking at the Articles of the Federation. We recognize that it is problematic. There are issues that need to be fixed. Hertz, or what, what do you have to do for that? Unanimous. And that is really tough. Because, again, like we stated earlier, the colonies aren't there to be a team. They are basically a group of individuals. It's kind of like an all-star team. They're all there to be recognized for themselves, not to, to play for it as a team. Yeah. So, you know, 13 out of 13, nearly going to be impossible to get and, and never happens during that 10 year period. Never. O outside of ratifying it, yeah. it, you never have any type of changes. The Articles Confederation. Pesky Rhode Island. <laughs> so outside of that, just other things that the central government cannot deal with. The British are actually still in the territories. They're hanging out west of the Appalachian Mountains, kind of like thumbing their noses at us going, nah, 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 nah. Well, sorry. No, 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 no. We are British. Yes. Uh, you cannot get us. Um, I don't know. It's like British Borat. I'm not sure about yeah, that. Why did it get very Borat there? But um, they're hanging yeah. out in Canada. I mean, another reason to be, you know, kind of sketched by Canada. And I, I think that's why the, uh, there, there's a whole provision of the Articles Confederation says, Canada, if you want to join us, you can come back to us. Yeah. Yeah. Come to us. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the British are still hanging out in other parts of the territory long after the war has ended. Long after the, the British have to, you know, recognize our sovereignty as a whole country, you know, disputes between states are a whole mess because, again, the Congress can call judicial appointments, uh, basically courts to deal with these crises if they, you know, are able to. But again, you need agreements Nine between out of 13. <laughs> you need agreements between all, mo most of these states. And so, like, you know, if there's a dispute between North Carolina and South Carolina, why should New York rush to make a judgment on, yes, sure, let's hear this out? You know, they, they don't care. And so ultimately, without a federal system of laws, there's kind of a patchwork from state to state to state. There's no federal like supremacy clause like there is with the U.S. Constitution. You know, if in one state it's illegal to do, you know, jaywalking and in the next state over, uh, it's perfectly fine to do jaywalking. You know, you just have this whole mess of issues with uh, going from one state to the next, which again, we're trying to create a United States. And if people can't freely move from one part of the country to the other without, you know, breaking laws. It's with, hard enough to currency. remember our own laws, right? I, I can't remember 50 different sets if, if it was still the Articles Confederation today. We can't read the speed limit signs. <laughs> but ultimately, with all these potential issues facing the country, what was the real flex test? What what proved that the articles were inadequate? Well, we were foreshadowing a little bit, but Shay's Rebellion plays a big role in showing the founders of the original articles that this is not going to be a long-term plan for government. There were too many, too many holes um, in the system. And it, it came to a head when, when Massachusetts, a state where the Revolutionary War ideas really start. And where most of the wars are well, not fought. Most, yeah. But a lot of the wars fought there, for yeah, sure. It, it rears its ugly head again when the farmers are mad at the government in Massachusetts for taxing them and, and taking their farms away from them. And, and they feel like, hey, it's happening again, guys. We're being oppressed by our government. Let's let's grab our rifles and go after them. And and they yeah. followed a man, Daniel Shays, and and they they terrorized the taxation courts. 
Um, they, they, they terrorized tax collectors again. They, they went after ammunition depots to try to, to get up for this, this conflict that, that they see is coming. And, and they ran rampant through Massachusetts for a and while. So let's compare that any type of crisis that you have today. If there's, if there's looting, if there's rioting, if there's a hurricane emergency response, you know, what would you expect to happen almost right away? that the federal government step in and, and assist a little bit. And so this is really kind of that 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 black and white moment when you look at how things are now versus how it was then. You know, Massachusetts alone was basically responsible for dealing with this rebellion. And and ultimately they do, but you know, Shay's rebellion runs rampant for a good a good amount of time, all things considered, and there is no response from the federal government. And and they couldn't, you know. Massachusetts was the one that was allowed to to raise the militia to put it down, but half their militia is out fighting with Daniel Shays because they think that what he his ideas are right, and the federal government couldn't lay a finger on them. And you know, if if this can happen in Massachusetts, it could happen anywhere. You know, that's one of the big things that we need to remember at this point in time that uh, a lot of these states are very much sort of on their own, and. Massachusetts is is one of the more capable states at this point in time from an economic and a political standpoint. They're pretty powerful. But if this can happen in Massachusetts, why not anywhere else? So you have to imagine that for a lot of people, a lot of politicians in, in, in particular, you know, this was something that weighed heavily on them. And it's debatable on how much of a role that Shays Rebellion played on the calling of the Constitutional Convention in uh, 1787, just a short time later. But you have to imagine it was on the mind of many of the delegates who were going there. And that's right. It's important to remember that while most of the delegates felt that it, a new governing document was necessary for the country, there's still a lot of disagreement regarding how it, would, how it should look moving forward. Lots of difference between northern and southern states, large states, small states, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of ideas being brought to the table. Yeah, and as far as a plan for government goes, uh, there were a few different plans that were brought to the floor, but we tend to focus on on two main ones and, and competing plans at that, the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. So James Madison is given credit for most of the, the crux of the Virginia plan. And in the Virginia plan, there's an establishment of three branches of government. So this is a stark departure from the Articles Confederation that only had the one. Um, you know, you're going to have a legislative branch, an executive branch, which is going to enforce laws, something that Congress had no ability to do in the Articles Confederation. And you're going to have a judicial branch who can help interpret laws and ultimately decide if laws are in line with the constitutional framework. Uh, and so ultimately, we need to spend a little bit of time, if we're talking about the Virginia plan, talking specifically about the legislature. We have to remember at this point in time, Virginia is like the it state. It is the largest state, the most powerful state. You know, it, it's got highly populated economic resources. It's got lots of people. Uh, it's got a lot of notable, you know, George Washington. A very good, diverse of resources. They got oceans, harbors, mountainous regions, good sure. farmland. Absolutely. Um, and so the Virginia plan that was proposed by Madison at the Constitutional Convention is going to set up a legislature with two houses, but both of which are going to be filled based on the population of the state. And 
This is, of course, a really popular idea among most of these larger states because like, oh, yeah, for years and years, we had one vote under the Articles of Confederation. You know, our our vote in Virginia is the same amount of value as the vote in Delaware. Sorry, Spoiler Delaware. Alert. Crowder's about to talk about Wyoming. <laughs> but um, long story short, when you look at this new plan under the Virginia plan, it gives a lot more power to large states. And large states, you know, very fairly loved the Virginia plan, but not everyone was a fan, Hertzler. Yeah, yeah, they are not. Uh, the little guys, um, they're not a big fan of the Virginia plan because if we do it based on population, you're going to have a lot of the country that feel like they're left out because they don't have a large population because they don't really have a very big landmass themselves. States like Delaware, New Jersey, uh, Rhode Island, they're all considered small states when it comes to population. And, and they don't like this idea. They come together and they create their own plan. The New Jersey plan which reinstates the fact that they want a, a system of legislature that is based on equality. You know, maybe more than just one vote, but keep it fair amongst everybody. And they also are trying to create this new document to mirror the articles in a way. They still want that sovereignty idea. They don't want a strong federal government that the Virginia plan is suggesting. Yeah, a lot of these smaller states, it's important to keep in mind, were okay with the Articles Confederation because they got equality in the central government, but they also were basically left alone. They didn't have to like take up the slack for a Massachusetts who, you know, fought largely in the war or take up the slack for Virginia, you know, New Jersey was on its own or, or Rhode Island was on its own. It could be left alone. It could do its own thing. Kind of like our, our old colleague, Dan Roseman just wants to be in his room uh, <laughs> and, and not bothered a lot of the time, but yeah, he um, doesn't want his, you know, big brother spying on him all the but, time, but you know, we still, we still like Dan and we still want to include him, of course. So yeah. that brings us to our next point. You know, how do you bring these, how do you marry these two ideas together? Well, I should know all about marriage, as you should, Crowder, because right. we've been through it in the last few years. It's all about compromise, isn't it? And uh, that that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to compromise these two plans. And and uh, Roger Sherman you know, came up with a pretty good idea. Why don't we have both of these houses in our legislature? You know, Why don't we have a, a system where population is the determining factor and we have a system where equality is the determining factor? I mean, that's pretty good, pretty good, solid compromise, don't you think? Sure. I mean, that's the classic mom or dad technique. If you have two kids that are <laughs> arguing the backseat, they could probably both be right. They could both be wrong, but you try to go for someone in the middle. I mean, the thing about compromise is, and maybe it's something we're not so good at as a country anymore in some ways, <laughs> you know, is not everyone gets their way exactly as they want it. You know, you're going to get some things that you want, but you're not going to get everything uh, and, and vice versa. But there it is. The, the compromise is... Uh, by, by Roger Sherman, is going to allow for the creation of three branches of government. It's going to allow for the creation of a bicameral legislature. Um, it's also going to set up a large federal government, which the New Jersey plan states still aren't too happy about. Um, but, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Absolutely. So outside of representation, there were some other hot, hot button issues uh, for the convention. And probably the next biggest thing, if not the biggest thing, uh, was actually the issue of slavery and what to do with slavery. Uh, 
at this point in time in U.S. history, slavery is prevalent in most colonies, um, and especially in the Southeast. Okay, that's just something that must be acknowledged. Uh, when we're talking about the delegates that came to the Constitutional Convention itself, you know, 25 of the 55 member delegation uh, had owned slaves or did own slaves actively at that time. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking at one of those things that a lot of people might even downgrade, you know, like what did the Constitution do well, what did it not do well, this is one of those point areas where it doesn't score points. Um, largely their response to slavery in the constitution was to kind of kick the can down the road to kind of punt on it to not deal with it exclusively uh and the reason for this was maybe again is we're, we're talking about compromise for certain states like south carolina georgia there were delegates who threatened to walk out and leave and basically work actively against the constitution if it talked about slavery in any form or fashion it doesn't use the word slavery or enslaved persons or anything like that it mentions basically citizens of the United States, and I think the term is like other, all other people. And so it's it's a really sensitive issue at that point in time that they, in the interest of making a new government, choose not to deal with. The two issues that come up regarding slavery is going to be the slave trade, you know, the importation of enslaved peoples from from other continents. Yeah, know? other continents is what you need to know is is coming from you know the Caribbean, um, Africa, uh, sometimes even from Europe. Once sure. they get you know moved around a bit, um, but yeah, yeah. But the 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 slave trade, the international slave trade, can't be touched for twenty years. Can't be discussed. Can't be talked about. Can't be banned uh, for a period of twenty years. And it, so it's going to take until eighteen oh eight, and exactly in January of eighteen oh eight, you know this law banning the importation of enslaved people goes into effect. Uh, outside of the slave trade, the, the perhaps most glaringly terrible thing uh, that's included in the Constitution. And probably one of the most divisive, if we had Absolutely. It. Other than how representation is going to work, if there was a lot of, of threatening to, to walk out, like you said, over the next issue that we're getting ready to talk about. Yeah, it's called the three-fifths compromise. Uh, and we have to understand about a couple things first. Uh, one, you know, slavery is, again, very prevalent in the United States of America, but it's especially going to be all over in the South. Uh, agricultural economy largely driven by, um, you know, the unpaid labor of enslaved peoples uh, is going to be really the bedrock for most of the Southern economy. And, and in reality, right after the American Revolutionary War, the South is doing significantly better economically than most of the Northeast for that reason that most of the people who are doing the labor are not paid because they're enslaved. Southern states actually want their slaves to be counted toward the population. And Hertzler, why is that? Well, because the southern states, especially South Carolina, North Carolina, and parts of Georgia, they're going to be considered a, a small state because a majority of their population is the slave labor. Um, and, and they are afraid that if they don't count the slave population, that they aren't going to have any representation. So they're hoping that 
they can get it to where slave labor is considered part of the population to give them that voice that they're afraid to lose. Yeah, so it's they're essentially padding their numbers for the number of people that they have in their state so that they can get more representation in Congress. And, you know, it's the, the, the people who are enslaved, they're not getting any right to vote. They're not getting any right to have their voices represented, but they do count toward the overall number. And that's where we get to this three-fifths number. Northern states did not want slaves to count because they were not considered people by any definition of, of but, what slavery is. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Southern states did want them to count for this whole representation issue. And so they settled on this three-fifths number in which uh, an enslaved person would count as three-fifths of a person. And so when you get into the literally hundreds of thousands of enslaved peoples throughout the South at this time, you know, you're really padding their numbers, not just for population, but for representation in Congress and their their impact on things like the Electoral College in deciding the U.S. president. It's going to be in a really divisive issue, as you said, uh, but it's really going to play to the advantage of these southern states at this time. And it's really going to bloat the, the South's power throughout most of the early years of American history. Um, yeah. And now, Thomas Jefferson doesn't get elected president in 1800 if we don't have the three-fifths compromise. Yeah, yeah. If it, it's all about that power and that control. And and like you said, they're they're doing really well for themselves. And they're afraid that if they don't get any representation, they're going to lose, lose the interest that, in the yeah, yeah, they're going to have all the power and they're going to lose their economic, you know, superiority. Yeah. Um, and so those are the really big issues regarding slavery that are more or less mentioned and, and talked about in the Constitution that largely tries to avoid it. As we move from that to our last major debatable topic is about federalism. And Hertzler, talk about federalism real quick and what's that all about? Federalism, you know, the is this idea that um, really comes about over the debate of this new Constitution, and that's how much power is the federal government going to have and how much power is the state gonna, state government's going to have and balancing it. And, and, and federalism is tricky when it comes to the balancing power, because remember the states, especially the small states still want their sovereignty, still want to be able to make their own decisions, still be rather independent. All right. And they don't want to lose that, that sense of individuality. Um, but again, the constitution is pushing for a more, a stronger central government. So giving more power uh, to, to that central government, to the legislative branch, to the executive. So it's important to understand as we move forward, and, and we'll get to this later on down the road in this podcast, not this one, but another episode, we'll talk about really the divisiveness of federalism because it is dividing. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I like to describe it as kind of a, a tightrope. You know, you're walking and you, you know, put too much power on the central government and all of a sudden you start leaning one way and you put too much power in the state government, you start leaning the one way. And it's, it's that same issue that you had with the Articles Confederation in which like, you know, how much power is too much, how much power is too little. In the Articles Confederation, they were very wary about the amount of power they gave the central government and it was ineffective and couldn't do anything. They are walking this, you know, too hot, too cold, just right, this kind of Goldilocks zone where you want to have... Uh, a fair amount of power in the hands of the federal government where they're able to effectively do things. Uh, but you have a lot of states who, you know, fair or not, 
want to keep and maintain a lot of the sovereignty that they had previously enjoyed. And you'll see throughout American history itself that federalism will will shift in big ways where you'll see large central government control and then it'll shift to, well, let's let's take a little take the reins off a little bit and give the states a little bit more more control. And then you'll see times where they do a really good job of working together. Um, spoiler alert, the last one, it doesn't work as well. It's normally all or nothing when it comes to, to, to federal power. And, and it comes in times of, of stress and, and need for stronger federal government control. And then when you see when times are going good, you'll see them loosen the reins a little bit. Yeah. Again, uh, federalism tricky, and we'll talk about it in the next episode. But, you know, it's one of those things where you know, an exact one situation could happen and you could ask two people, you know, what do you think's going on? How's the government response? And someone would say, there's way too much government in this going on right now. You'd ask the very next person, we need more government to do this. And so, you know, I guess being discontent with how the government's operating is also an American tradition. Yeah. Yeah. The debatable topics have been figured out. They've been discussed, right? You have people who sign on to this document, like it's done, right? We're done. So you have to go through this ratification process. And in the ratification process, you have to get nine out of 13 states to agree that this is a good framework for government and we should adopt this and, you know, more, you know, hypothetically tear up the Articles of Confederation. Thank goodness it doesn't have to be unanimous, right? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of built-in things to make government a lot easier, like passing laws. You need a simple majority. You don't need two-thirds. Yeah, 51%. Uh, order, that's all you need. In order to make amendments, it's not everybody. It's two-thirds of Congress, two-thirds two thirds of the House, two-thirds of Senate, uh, and three-quarters of the states, you know, so on and so forth. Like, there are things that did not work, the articles, that they intentionally made better in the Constitution or made easier. Well, hold the up. There's also some things that make some states wary, like an executive leader. They're afraid that this elect executive leader might be another king, and, and, and you know, they're not happy about that. So Hertzler, it would be fair to say that some people from right off on the bat were in favor of the constitution and some were against it. Yeah, that's very, very likely. That yes. is, is the point. Um, that's what we're getting at folks. So uh, for that obvious, like, I'm like a non-playable character in a video game. It's like, this is something to hear all later. You know, make, <laughs> sure, make sure you pay attention to this. Um we have two groups that come out of the Constitutional Convention, and one is called the Federalists, and the other, quite originally, is called the Anti-Federalists. Yeah, because it's history. We're good at naming things. We're, we're good at names. And, and also remember, it's Federalists are the people. Federalism is the idea. Just, okay. just, just yeah, an FYI. Absolutely. So Federalists, what were Federalists all about, Hertzler? Well, first of all, the Federalists are the ones that like the Constitution. They're, they're for ratifying it. Um, most of the time, these are your northern states. Um, these are your businessmen in the northern states who who like this idea of having a government that that is there to assist them and, and, and to um, be beneficial for them. Yeah. All right. Um, George Washington, closet Federalist. Um, he didn't really want to. He let, tried to be a political party. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't want to show any favoritism, um, but he was a big proponent because he had a lot of ideas in this. And, and also, it's important. Like he he was the guy. You know, the Constitutional Convention. They wanted to lend credibility to the whole thing. They said, 
we'll call on that George Washington guy to lead this up because people listen to him. They see him as a natural leader. He had gotten us through the American Revolutionary War. Yeah. Uh, so Washington really lended credibility to the Constitutional Convention. And by simply being there, by putting his name literally, literally on the paper and endorsing it, uh, that probably sold a lot of people on this document as well. But you have other notable Federalists like Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, uh, even James Madison, who later on down the road becomes maybe more in the central camp of things, but he is considered to be the father of the Constitution. He came up with the Virginia Plan. He pens a lot of the core ideas that make up our government. He is the father of the Constitution. Why would he go against it? And then we have other fathers of the Constitution, like Benjamin Franklin, who is the father of our country in multiple ways. Don't ask us what that means. Um, but... On the flip side of things, you have plenty of people who are not in favor of the Constitution, and they are called the Anti-Federalists. People like, uh, most notably, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Mason. Patrick Henry. The give me liberty, give me death guy. Um, you know, so there are a fair number of people who are for it and against it. But what happens at this point in time is you have to go on this campaign to win hearts and minds of, of these legislatures across the entire country. And so that gets us into our favorite topic as high school teachers, writing essays. To get these people to want to approve or ratify the new constitution, the Federalists create a series of documents to, to help people understand what's in the document they're called the federalist papers and they're kind of like a, a dummy's guide to the constitution like um just to help explain the different points because the constitution is very dry when it comes to explanation so so they it's or spark notes they're like spark notes to the constitution and it's important to remember that a lot of people were still on the fence regarding the new constitution. A lot of those small states, a lot of the southern states, some of the very same things that we've been talking about. Uh, and so ultimately, the Federalist Papers were written as a way to assuage their fears that you're not going to have another tyrant. Uh, you're not going to have such a strong government that the states still don't have a lot of rights. And that's an important thing to remember. Yeah, there's 85 of these these Federalist Papers, and, and, and it's hard to really understand the important ones. But but there are four really good ones that, that really help sum up what they were trying to do with this new document. And that's Federalist Paper 10, which talks the need for a large republic. You have Federalist Paper 51, which explains how checks and balances will be good for this new country. You have Federalist Paper 70 which talks about why we included an executive branch. And then you have Federalist 78, why we also needed to add a, a judicial branch to our government. So uh, with all the Federalist papers written and published by John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, states one by one started approving or ratifying the Constitution at state legislatures around the country. And finally, when New Hampshire approves the U.S. Constitution, on June 22nd of 1788, they become the ninth state to ratify the Constitution, and so it goes into effect. Uh, ultimately, the first day of this new government is March 9th of 1789. But you still got to remember there's a few states left that still have to ratify it, but it doesn't matter. It's a victory for the Federalists. It is the new government. And with the new government came a whole new uncertainty of the country that would become 
but George Washington is elected the first president of the United States unanimously. Supreme Court goes into effect. They establish their own precedent for what the Supreme Court does uh, very soon. Uh, and the Congress continues on now in a bicameral legislature with representatives based on population in the House of Representatives and every state getting two votes in the Senate. So let's go with our, our debatable topic here, Crowder. Um, who won the Constitutional Convention? Um, which side do you feel like had most of the ideas that they brought to the table recognized and put in? Well, it's hard to recognize, you know, winners and losers, because ultimately I do want to say, and this is cheesy, and I recognize it full well. That's a very political answer of you. <laughs> I know, I'm running for office. Um, you know, American citizens did gain a lot out of the Constitution in terms of good governance, things like that, as compared to the Articles of Confederation, which had some good points, but were largely a mess and made things pretty you know, hard and ineffective. Now, if I were to actually answer the question, which most politicians don't get to this point, I would say that, you know, in terms of winners and losers of the Constitutional Convention, I, I would honestly say that Southern states are going to get a lot more out of the Constitutional Convention in terms of concessions uh, than, than maybe the Northern states were willing to give up. Um, you have basically the threat of walking out of the Constitutional Convention altogether, make a lot of the writers, make a lot of the people who are framing this Con this constitution pause they completely leave out slavery uh they give southern states a lot of rights regarding representation in congress with a three-fifths compromise um you get a lot of concessions with you know representation it also counts toward the electoral college you know virginians make up four of the first five presidents you know and that's that's no mistake i mean the the south holds a lot of sway in early elections, um, both on the presidential level and the legislative level. Uh, so I would have to say with the concessions made at the Constitutional Convention, with the amount of power that they're going to gain, and also with, you know, the later on uh, compromise between Jefferson and, and, and Hamilton, uh, placing the nation's capital farther south, the southern states, especially Virginia, can literally breathe down the neck of the federal government. Again, you're keeping an eye on Big Brother, so yeah. the other way around. Absolutely. Um, so, Hertzler, who would you say is a winner, quote-unquote, of the Constitutional Convention? I, I honestly would agree with you, but I would also include that the larger states are, are the main winners uh, of the Constitutional Convention because you see a lot of their ideas brought to the table. Um, with the smaller states, the only really thing that, that they can hold their heads at is the fact that they do have a Senate that, that gives them – that equality that they've always wanted um, in, in the legislative branch, you know, when it comes to making decisions. Uh, and, and I feel like, you know, you see the growth of Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, North Carolina. North Carolina is not a big state yet in the terms of the historical context. Land-wise, they are, but but they're going to grow into an economic powerhouse uh, throughout the years. So so economically, you, you see the larger states are going to prosper. Absolutely. So that will wrap our very first episode of Gov Guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hertzler, we're not sponsored by anybody yet, but you know, what are you liking out there? I don't know. Um, if it's free, it's for me, right? So um, Heavenly Hoagie, if you are listening, I would love a sponsorship. Um, 
That'd be great. This episode brought to you by the gasoline it took to get here. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. We will see you again at some point in time with if an episode. If you made it this of, far, thank you so much. Yes. We appreciated it. Mention this episode for $5 off. Nothing. We don't Nothing. sell anything. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, I, but, but this will be uploaded. Um, and uh, tell your friends, share the link out. Um, be nice. Um, this is this is kind of a hobby of ours. Um, we're going to make this for for students. Yeah, for the most part. If it gets popularity, you never know. Never know where this ride might go. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna uh, you know maybe work to get uh, guest stars on here. Yeah, uh, it's probably gonna start pretty small, but you know maybe we'll maybe we'll branch out and get some local politicians. Maybe some not so local politicians. Maybe no one. We'll find out. All right. Thank you very much for tuning in. Have a wonderful day. See you guys.